it's an extremely lonely thing to constantly be the only one in the room. So when you show up to a meeting and realize that it's only you in that space. Being a role model and encouraging people to be in the true self, I cannot give them happiness, but I can make them feel comfortable. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Nephron segment, where nephrology is always concentrated, sometimes convoluted, never dilute. Join a group of nephrons as we try to push the boundaries of kidney medicine. Our focus today is equity in healthcare and creating communities for underrepresented groups in medicine. I'm Ellie Mannon, an MD-PhD student at the Medical College of Georgia. Hi, I'm Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University. Hi everyone, I'm a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai in New York City. We're really lucky to have two special guests with us today. We have Dr. Jensen Hall and Dr. Nargis Flores, who will both introduce themselves. Uh, Nargis, if you wanna go first. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Nargis Flores. I'm the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program and a thoracic medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Brigham Women's Hospital. I completed my residency at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School and training at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. I'm the founder of the Flores Lab. In addition, I'm the co-founder of the Hashtag Latinas in Medicine online community. And Jensen. Hello, everyone. I'm Jensen Hall. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Duke University and an investigator at the Duke Molecular Physiology Institute. I have a lab focused on the genetics of familial nephrotic syndrome. I'm also the uh, Vice Chief of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion at Duke for the Division of Nephrology. It's good to be here. Uh, So, uh, Nard, just to get our conversation started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in social justice and creating this community for Latinas in medicine? So I think part of my story is that um, I have to mention my privilege, and is that I'm the daughter of two surgeons. I grew up in Venezuela and South America, and the political situation in my country forced me to leave my country quite early at the age of 16 to the Dominican Republic. And then I was shipped to the United States to finish medical school in Seattle. During training, I faced significant discrimination and isolation. I was often it, the Latina, the only one. As a medical student, I was told to see the patients that speak Spanish, and my patients were five compared to two of the other medical students because as the one who spoke Spanish. And that translated to residency. Residency was quite challenging. I was often called, uh, you were so colorful or you're so Latina. Um, and, and to be honest, we all of you, I wasn't walking around with a pineapple in my head. I was just the only Latina. That discrimination led to clinical depression and almost leaving medicine. Despite growing in a house of physicians, my grandparents were also doctors. As a consequence of that, and after 20 pounds that paroxetine gave me, after being treated with depression, I noticed that I wasn't the only one being isolated. So with a group of two close friends, Dr. Maria Mora Pinzon at the University of Wisconsin and a student, Dr. Brianna Christophers, we founded the Twitter community Latinas in Medicine. And a year later, I founded the Flores Lab that focuses on social justice. The main goal is that other people do no experience or we are there to listen when they experience the discrimination in medical education. What we see often is now is a lot of tokenism in which you protect the minorities and the website, but you only have those minorities. And we see a lot of recruitment, but no inclusion. 
And that can be traumatizing to many levels in which you are recruited into an internal medicine program to check the box, but you are not included. So every door and every wall makes you feel excluded. And I have seen many people leave medicine. So our goal is not only to recruit, but retain, support, and nourish Latinas to achieve their maximum potential in whichever specialty they want to do. That's a, a really powerful story and hoping we can come back to hear a bit more. Um, Jensen, can you similarly tell us a bit about yourself and share your journey in medicine so far? Yeah, thanks. Samira, I had a, a similarly traumatic journey, but you know, a good amount of it was actually in medical school. I was very interested in basic science research really at an early age, and I knew I wanted it to be a part of my medical practice. And so I pursued the MD-PhD track in several ways. I was discouraged from doing it, honestly. At that time, the university had only graduated one uh, African-American trainee, and that was a few years before I would ultimately graduate. But there was no precedent set for African-American males. And so it was a very lonely road to travel during medical school and in the graduate school years. But I was fortunate to have a really great mentor in the sense that he was um, very knowledgeable, just, you know, did not seem to have any particular interest in my race per se. He really just wanted to see me be good at the science I was doing in his lab. So it worked out well in that regard, and I was able to finish the program. The first African-American male MD-PhD to graduate in the centennial year of the university, actually. And then I came to Duke, and it was a very interesting experience. I had heard quite a bit about Duke, has a, uh, an excellent reputation for clinical care and training and the like. I wasn't quite ready for the environment of um, pugilism, maybe, <laughs> when I got there. It was rough, and I was not from North Carolina. I did not know anyone. And so I did have my co-residents to sort of lean on, but it was a very lonely experience. And I was fortunate, probably the most fortunate of anyone I know to make contact with the best mentor I ever had, Michelle Wynn. She was a kidney geneticist and um, somehow, you know, beyond the science, she really could relate. She had been in ways to all the places that I had been and then some. So uh, it was not a strange or unfamiliar experience for her to hear me explain that, that unwelcome feeling that I had and uh, sort of the adversarial um, uh, statements, comments, actions that I faced on a daily basis. She helped me to really navigate that early on. And unfortunately, she passed in 2014. So I kind of really lost that support. And as such, the last couple of years has been really difficult. Sort of life outside the boat, if you will, when you don't quite have that sponsorship, that support, it's brutal. So I tried to gather the lessons that I learned from the years I was in Michelle's, uh, um, you know, kind of under her mentorship. And I decided to apply it positively. There was an opportunity for this vice chief of diversity, equity, and inclusion role. And I figured that I would take that more or less to be a heat shield for the next group of people coming in behind me. Hopefully I could make changes that I think I would have benefited from had they been in place when I was matriculating. And hopefully I'm making some strides in doing that. But it, yeah, it's a difficult environment, but I don't think it's more difficult than any other place. I don't think that this was necessarily designed for us to succeed or to feel comfortable in succeeding. And so we carve our way through 
an accumulation of friendly interactions with people who are invested in us and just grit and determination. And hopefully on the back end, we've done some good things for patients and others coming behind us. I thank you both for sharing that. Um, I think hearing from both of you themes of the importance of inclusion, acceptance, belongingness, and Jensen, unfortunately, similar to you. I also lost a mentor uh, last year, Dr. Barbara Murphy, who, similar to you, really kind of made everybody in her world feel very included and accepted. And so I'd love to hear from both of you a bit more about these spaces that you've been a part of and started to create. And so maybe starting with Nargis, can you go a little bit more into detail about Latinas in medicine and what you've learned from that experience and what maybe other groups and specialties might be able to learn from that? I'm going to tell you two things. One is that we use tears as sweat. And we often cry after these horrible experiences. And I see those those tears, I told my mentees, as sweat. You know, some people sweat at the gym to build muscle, right? So when you cry, when you feel excluded, when you don't feel like you belong, I want you to see those tears as sweat. You're sweating the system that wasn't created to include you, but you're also developing that sweat to develop, to create and get a place for you. I would often say, oh, look at her color, colorful shoes. Look at how colorful she is, how she enthusiastic. And I still get called exotic today, despite having, you know, many leadership positions. So something that we really do in Latinas in Medicine in my lab is to encourage people be who they are, because we are truly happy when we are ourselves. And we don't try to minimize people's emotions. If you feel excluded, if you feel down, those emotions are validated. I remember being taught to men up. First, I'm a woman. I cannot men up. And second, residence shouldn't supposed to be a place in which you're considering hearing yourself. So we encourage people to be themselves to a point that we often take pictures of our nails. Like we love nail art. And that may not mean anything, but I remember being told, oh, you should wear a French because that's more professional. And professionalism is a weapon that is used against minorities. My curly hair. Oh, you look so professional when you straight your hair. Well, surprise now, that's the hair that comes out of my head. So something that we really do is to encourage be who you are because we're trying the system and people around it, they think they're helping you, trying to put you in this box and shape you what you're supposed to be. But I cannot be a middle-aged white man with gray hair. And I came to that realization during fellowship. I can. So in a way to be a role model and 200% Latina now to a point that I play Bad Bunny in front of 4,000 oncologists in one of my presentations just four weeks ago. So being a role model and encouraging people to be in the true self, I cannot give them happiness, but I can make them feel comfortable. And some of my mentees and members of Latinas in Medicine are like, you know, NJ, that's my nickname. I walk into the boardroom with my yellow dress for the first time. And that is to encourage people to be their true self because there's somebody in the corner that's looking at you as a role model that you don't know. And I often get addressed by like two weeks ago, I was in the elevator and there was somebody from food services in the hospital that asked me to meet her daughter because I was the first Latina doctor that she ever met working in the hospital for 20 years. What did I do? Of course, we call her and FaceTime as soon as we get out of the elevator. So making people comfortable with themselves 
and also encourage them to speak up. Because we're often put down and called that you're a disruptor. And that's something that you don't want to be. You don't want to be a disruptor. You don't want to be a problem maker. And, you know, life is so ironic that I remember telling my grandpa, who unfortunately passed away, I don't want to be a disruptor. And my grandpa is like, why not? And I was like, I don't want to be labeled like the problem. Because as a woman of color, I'm often labeled as the angry Latina or the toxic Latina. And, you know, life comes a full cycle. And I was just giving the 2022 Health Equity Disruptor of the Year. So... At the end, I'm okay being a disruptor because the status quo doesn't include me and it doesn't include my patients. So summary, long answer is we encourage people to be their true self, to advocate, to do research and to fight inequalities with data because people won't second guess you when you come with the data, the paper. Some of them, you know, may second guess you after you leave the room, but when you have data, it's very hard for somebody to say, Maybe that just only happened to you. Love that. Be your true self. That is a great motto and something we need to push. Jensen, I'm going to come back to you and something that you said. You said in the 100-year anniversary of your medical school, you were the first Black MD, PhD graduate? First Black male. The first Black graduate was actually a female. So let's talk about that and look at some data. So about 11% of medical students currently in the United States are Black. However, if you look at Black male medical students, it's only 2.9%. And that hasn't changed since 1978. Actually, it was higher at 3.1%. It's a real problem, and we still haven't made a lot of movement in that area. There's two spaces that I wanted to talk about. One was Black Men in Medicine initiative, and the other one was Black Men in White Coats. Can you tell us a little bit about those initiatives and what they're doing to try to increase diversity and to help advocate and sponsor individuals so that we can move the needle on this? So, you know, I'm, I'm glad you, you made reference to those numbers because they really are stark. Um, how low they are is true, but it's uh, what's stark in my mind is the, the fact that there's been no movement. Uh, over decades. And at least in terms of the contact that I have with people who are interested in medicine, it's something that they deal with before they even approach the task of their first day on service or their first day as a resident. It's really trying to understand where they would fit into an environment like that. There are very few people that they can refer to as firsthand examples of the success that they would want to have. And then it's also an issue of feeling a sense of vulnerability, having to face the hostility that they just imagine that they're going to face when they get there. And unfortunately, they're not disappointed in that. I think these two programs, neither of the two programs, Black Men in Medicine or Black Men in White Coats, are of my creation, but they are intended to create First of all, role models, experiences for African-American men in particular to see themselves physically embodied in the practice of medicine, whether it be academic or out in private practice, and also to elevate them in terms of their general self-esteem and morale. It's an extremely lonely thing to constantly be the only one in the room. So when you show up to a meeting or you have a presentation to give and realize that it's only you in that space. Uh, it's, it's very threatening in a way, and it's quite lonely. After a while, I've gotten used to it. 
I'm confident in what I know, and so I can speak to that. But it takes a while to develop that confidence. And I think so many people, so many young men that would possibly consider careers in medicine are in the earliest imaginings somewhat put off by the notion that uh, maybe this isn't the place for me. Maybe I won't have any support when I get here. I honestly don't know how things would have turned out for me if I hadn't met Michelle, to be honest. I mean, as far as I had gotten at that point, I just in that first nine months of intern year, quite a bit of discouragement had mounted. And it was a combination of things, both personal and professional. But I can't say that there weren't other Black men for me to kind of look at and reach out to. But the instincts to do that are not there because they weren't there at any other time. And so what you tend to develop is you involute. You become just sort of cloistered in your own feelings of despair and discouragement. And most of us just sort of press on in our own way. We kind of figure that that's going to be a part of it. And you just sort of make the goal the goal. And when you come out on the other end, you maybe have a little bit more agency to dictate your circumstances. But the journey through, I think, is very threatening to most people in what they would imagine and ultimately what they would experience. And to be honest, I don't know the number of people, really high quality physicians that I've seen leave my institution and other institutions from academia altogether just in the past couple of years um, has really been an eye-opening experience for me to just know that there are so many people are feeling in a similar way and that it's just too much for them. The cost of living under those um, circumstances is just too high, so they leave. And the ultimate cost is to the patients, their sense of of agency, belonging, being heard in, in such a vulnerable environment as being a recipient of medical services. Sometimes just seeing that one face, that can change your whole outlook on a situation. And when they don't have that, or those faces are few and far between, it's a desperate situation. So those programs seek to address that, but on the end of trying to build people into physicians, professionals that can represent for underrepresented groups. I think I'd like to sort of stay on this topic for a minute and ask both you and Dr. Flores to speak to how having a die workforce itself can lead to better patient care and why it's so important for us to promote and invest in this diversity for trainees and throughout every level of training. I'm going to rephrase that, foster diversity and inclusion, because rice without beans is not the same, okay? So we cannot recruit without changing our practices. And what I have seen in the last few years is that a lot of programs are used to be the batch of honors, how many your residents are publishing or how many grants are getting, but now it's how many minorities you have. But those minorities are often doing horrible on their programs. So I think understanding that inclusion is necessary before you recruit. And that includes everyone. That includes the leadership and that includes the resident that is going to take, it's going to supervise that, supervise that intern. And we need to let go of this thought that we need to suffer to training because that's what many people are living. We have this thought that you cannot be a doctor, at least you suffer during training. Dermatologists are doing just fine. So I, I think it's 
very important that we forget that, that we're here to nourish brilliant minds instead of just feeling that they have to work hard because we work hard. That's just so 1999, right? So, or even before that. <laughs> so I think it's very important that we do inclusion. Before I forget, I want to encourage everyone, just published today an editorial that took me two years to write about my experience during training. It's called My White Code Doesn't Fit, and it was just published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, and it's the first editorial out there talking about exclusion in medical education and oncology. Because sometimes we feel like we're the oncologists, we're all touchy-feeling. Now we also exclude people. So I want to encourage people to, to read that because the hope is that they don't feel alone. That often you see me and Dr. Hall and the podium giving this talk, getting this grant, and we forget that to get there, it took a lot of suffering and that a lot of rejection, a lot of like phrases like, you're just not a good fit. Oh, you're better when you talk this way. Or we don't get your jokes about your abuelita. So diversity is important, but inclusion is way more important because Dr. Hall and I, we're here despite what we face during training. But can you imagine how many brilliant minds have left? I have one trainee, she has been my mentee for five years. When she went to her pre-med counselor, the counselor told her, isn't that ambitious? What about nursing? When she verbalized she wanted to be a doctor. So that's just an example of how these microaggressions and environments are pushing us away. And the only people that stay here is because <laughs> we unfortunately are very resilient. And like Dr. Hall say, grit is essential. But to anybody who's listening, we are here to change the status quo. So don't steer away from medicine. You belong in medicine and you bring a lot to patient care, research, and teaching. Jensen, to bring this back to nephrology a bit, what are your thoughts as a nephrologist and piggybacking on what Dr. Flores said? Where are we in nephrology? What can we do within nephrology? What is our status of kind of achieving these goals of diversity and inclusion? You know, I, I uh, honestly have to say it's not a hopeless situation, but it's discouraging at this point. I will say only it's not because that people are not trying to do better. I think there are some really positive movements happening all across the country at Duke. Some things are happening, but it's the feeling of it's what happens once the person has invested in the dream. You know, as, as uh, Dr. Flores was saying, bringing a person into an environment so that the census improves is not the same as welcoming them into the environment, nurturing them, helping them to feel included. Nephrology in all of its facets, it's a beautiful science. I just, I love everything about it. I think it's, it's just a really smart organ to study. And I feel fortunate to have been brought to this from other interests that I had. But once I got here, it's, you know, it's lonely. It's lonely. My wife is also a nephrologist. And so the two of us together have provided each other with support. But 
she has said to me on multiple occasions in, in different circumstances as we have our private discussions that I don't know if I want to keep doing this. I don't know if I can keep doing this uh, because of interactions that she's had that have some, in some ways um, left her feeling defeated and, and so on. And of course, we encourage each other through these moments. Uh, but I think about, and we have to remind ourselves constantly about the loss to patience, the loss to the field if our ideas and our impressions are not included. Um, and that's what kind of helps us to, to fight through. Um, you asked about the cost to patience. I think the cost to patience is what one would imagine. There's a certain familiarity of circumstance when an African-American patient comes in contact with an African-American physician. I've experienced that a number of times that just in those private moments before you discuss business, the business of their problem, you know, an older African-American female will inevitably say, you know, I just want to congratulate you or I just want to, you know, something like that really to, um, to take note of the fact that you are there. And I don't know what exactly you had to do to get here, but I assume based on my experience that it was a lot. And I am congratulating you that you are here in place to help me when I need it. It is a gift to me. And those types of things, you know, that really does push you forward at uh, your weakest, most frustrated moments. That The remembrance of that pushes you forward in your science and other things as well. I, I will say that um, one of the things that's frightening is that um, you sort of notice the moves in the culture. There was a huge response to this um, this this murder that happened in the streets of um, I forget where now was it George Floyd is who I'm referring to, um, and that rippled into academic spaces and has elicited all of this new interest and change and everybody's sort of, you know, these new positions popping up and people are now interested in attending to these issues. But what makes me nervous about this is that I've also noticed in just a short period of time after that the public winds have changed. I'm hopeful that we can still sort of rally the effort to make academic spaces almost a beacon of what life on the outside should be. But, you know, already I'm seeing some calcification that's troubling. And I don't know how we solve this problem. I think the history of African-Americans is that you you take the hits, you get up if, off the floor if that's where you landed, and you sort of reinvest in the idea and come at the problem in a new way. Ultimately, in academic spaces, what it requires is that people decide that this is important enough to me for me to make courageous decisions in favor of these vulnerable trainees, faculty. Um, they have to see people in a new way that their lives are as valuable to the proper working of this institution as mine. And if they don't, then these will just be fits and starts, fits and starts, fits and starts. Nothing truly taking hold and people mostly due to common sense, deciding that there are other places I should be. That's just in academics. And then on the outside, we've seen some really troubling moves in the culture that I think make people in minority groups feel really under threat right now.
And it's sort of a, an odd time, but I just, I think as far as nephrology goes, I think it probably has just about as much work to do as any other subspecialty. I hope that they will take that task because these are undoubtedly an accumulation of some of the most brilliant minds walking the planet. And it would only require that the hearts and the minds align on this issue or these issues to kind of create real change that's durable. I want to go back to Nargis. One of the things that we had in our mind when we created this podcast is to look at what's happening in other fields and see if we can take the positives that are happening in those fields and apply it to nephrology. So one of the things I want to hear about as a program director is what are some things that have happened in oncology that has fostered a more diverse and inclusive environment and that we can use to make nephrology better? Well, Matt, I have no great news for you. <laughs> and on oncology remains one of the least diverse specialties with internal medicine. We are fighting with cardiology for one of the least diverse areas. And I think it has to do because a lot of students for underrepresented groups and medicine are not exposed to oncology early. You may remember your internal medicine times and, you know, Dr. Holman also remember that we, as interns, you were barely in contact with patients with cancer. They were always sheltered in these units with double doors in which plants were not allowed and people in general were not allowed. So we're trying to change that. We still lack diversity in trainees. A study from my own lab that was presented last year shows that we have the same amount of represented groups in medicine and oncology that 10 years ago. But in collaboration with ASCO and Dr. McCleary Jackson from Dana-Farber, we created the Oncology Summer Internship Programs that is currently taking place in several medical schools in the United States and is sponsored by ASCO. So what this provides is that early exposure of underrepresented groups in medicine to oncology is targeted to underrepresented groups in medicine and includes clinical exposure as well as virtual uh, learning environment. This is only the second year that this is going on. These are medical students, MS2, second year and third year medical students. So I hope in 10 years I can come back to this podcast with the nephrons and say, oh, it made a difference. So that's a big intervention. I think as a program director, the most important thing I would say is when you have a trainee coming to you to bring an issue, irregardless of their background, we need to listen. For a trainee to bring something to a person or authority requires a lot of thought, a lot of bravery. And we often miss them. And we, we forget how hard it is for them to come to us. So listening and having a real open door policy. A lot of people is like, I have an open door. Mm, a real one. In which you can talk about, no, the paper got rejected, but I'm not doing well personally. I feel lonely. I have nobody in this city, which is common for many underrepresented groups in medicine. They have no family where they're training. And I have no family in Boston, for, for example. So listening is very important. And also remembering that we cannot be competent in somebody's culture. The term cultural competency should be burned down and we should forget about it. We need to practice cultural humility, which is a lifelong learning journey. I'm a Latina, and I cannot be competent in Mexican culture. I'm South American. We don't eat a spicy food. 
Let me start there. You know, so even we in Latinos, even with the African-American community and immigrant communities, you cannot become competent in their culture. So listening and understanding that you learn from your trainees as much as they learn from you. And we need to come down from this ivory tower. Like we are no better than our trainees. We're just older and we have been around the block. That's what I told my mentees. I know better than you. I just been around the block longer. And I know how you write this paper, how do you sell your manuscript, how you ap apply for grants. And we need to be sure that our trainees don't feel like they have to find this miracle mentor, which is important. But many people don't have that luck. So you can have mentorship for many people in many different areas. Because I feel many mentees are disappointed that haven't found that mentor. And that's what pushes them away from academic medicine. And last thing, just going back to the question that you asked about why is it important for patient care, let me tell you what happened to me on Monday, which means yesterday. I walk into a clinic. This is a Spanish-speaking patient with metastatic lung cancer, never smoker. That's the patients I see. I My name is Narcos Duma and transitioned to Flores. So for her, I wasn't a Latina, right? Like She didn't Google me. Abuelita didn't Google me. I opened the door and I started speaking Spanish to her. And I just saw how 20 pounds of weight were lifting from my patient's shoulder. And she started crying. Not because I say anything, just because I will get it. And she didn't have to struggle to understand the space having an interpreter. And I will understand the teas that she's drinking. I wouldn't judge her. I would just do things with her. So that's what matters is that our patients get the appropriate care. And that same patient was taking a remedio that was affecting her liver enzymes. But when she was interviewed, they asked her, are you taking any vitamins or supplements? And she said, no, because for Latinos, vitamins and supplements is not the same that remedios. So remedios is what your grandma usually makes for you. It usually includes some type of aloe vera, onion, and some type of tea, all combined. And that's the remedio she was taking, and now we're taking her off. And that's the difference that makes, that now she can qualify for a clinical trial because she's off the remedio. She's not taking supplements and vitamins, she's taking a remedio. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's so powerful. And I think, you know, we've heard in nephrology specifically, and I have heard recently from my patients that our patients want their providers to, to get them, to understand them and to even look like them. And I think, you know, speaking the language is, is one really important aspect of that. Really happy to hear you say that in oncology, you're trying to create these communities, for example, with the internship that you described. We've tried to do something a little bit similar in nephrology. We have a program called Nefsim Nephrons that is really targeted towards medical students and residents that have some interest in learning a bit more about nephrology. It's an international program. And for trainees that are enrolled, we pair them with mentors from around the country, other similarly like-minded trainees. And as you're describing a kind of a year-long curriculum that is a combination of uh, virtual teaching experiences, and also they're designed to meet with their mentees mentees meet with mentors to learn a bit more. And I think the idea is to really level the, the training field. And as you said so nicely, I think we're not any different from them. We are just older. And so I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about social media and medical education is that we are really on the same playing field and we can communicate freely. And it doesn't really matter what your title or hierarchical role is that you can just share and be there with the trainees. And I think 
this is really a, an important strategy to use, not only in nephrology, oncology, but I think in medical fields in general. And so I think, you know, we're wrapping up a little bit to the end here. So at the end of each episode, we like to ask our guests, what is something that brings you joy outside of medicine? Yeah, the easiest, best answer are my kids. They are hilarious. I feel honored to have contributed to bringing such funny people into the world. They make me laugh, belly laugh every day. Um, It's just, it's an amazing contrast to to the woes of the world to have people who view it so completely differently and in ways that are so humorous. So uh, yeah, by far, my kids. I collect vinyl, but I don't like to buy reissues. So I always go into Goodwill, state sales, grandmas moving out of their houses to try to collect those vinyls. Um, I just got the entire Barbara Streiser collection for $8.99 in Goodwill. And I also enjoy cooking. I, I really do enjoy cooking. Um, The more complicated the recipe, the more I enjoy it. And so I think that fills my cup because you need to fill your cup and I wear this taking so much out of you every day. Well, Dr. Flores and Dr. Hall, thank you both so much. I just want to thank you both for being on this episode of our podcast. We are so glad to have spent this time with both of you to get to know you and your experiences and training being from underrepresented groups in medicine. Thank you for your time, for your honesty, and for your engagement. And a big thank you to all those of you who are listening at home, on your way to work, in the lab, (laughs) on the wards, hopefully not. But we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Nephron segment, where nephrology is always concentrated, sometimes convoluted, never diluted.